Shoreshine Podcast, shining a light to the nations. Well, shalom once again, everyone. I'm Bill Cloud, and I want to welcome you to our program today, Returning to Our Roots. If you've been tuning in, you know that we've been discussing Babylon, but more recently we've been discussing the days of Noah and what the days of Noah are really all about. Now, in our previous program, we were discussing a verse in Genesis chapter 4 that talked about the days of Enosh. And so we want to go back to that verse in Genesis 4, verse 26, which says this, And as for Seth, to him also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. What we were sharing with you in the previous program was that in English it sounds as if in the days of Enosh that men were calling out to the one and true God. It has that positive connotation. But we also shared with you that when we look at this verse in Hebrew, the word that is translated began in Hebrew is huchal, which literally means to profane, to pollute, to desecrate. And so in reality what this verse tells us is that in the days of Enosh, men began to profane the name of the Lord, and and more specifically, the authority of the Lord. And many Jewish commentators made note of the fact that because this Hebrew word was there that means to corrupt and profane, that it was in the days of Enosh that men began to mix and mingle true worship with idolatrous worship. They began to mix and to mingle what is holy with those things that were profane. And so this is what's going on in the beginning of days. And it very intensely in the days leading up to the flood. Now, this is important for us because Daniel, in describing the very last kingdom of man in Daniel chapter 2, that kingdom that is personified as being two feet with ten toes, iron mingled or mixed with clay, Daniel said that this kingdom, or in the time of this kingdom, that they will mingle with the seed of men. And the word men there is the Aramaic term enosha. And Enosha is equivalent to the name Enosh. In other words, Daniel's use of this term is linking what he's describing, something that's going on at the end of days, with something that goes or that happened in the beginning of days, which is a biblical concept. You want to understand what's happening in the end? You must first understand what's going on in the beginning. In the beginning, in the days of Enosh, they were mixing and mingling. In the days of this last kingdom, before the Messiah returns, Daniel says that they will mingle with the seed of Enosha, implying that the things that were going on during the days before the flood are going to be the same things that are going on in the very end of days. Now, we understand from some commentaries that in the beginning of time, as men began to mix and to mingle holy and profane, idolatrous worship with true worship, that those who were the true worshipers of the one and only God, those who were committed to upholding His truths, His standards, His instructions, had to separate themselves from the idolaters. And many of these commentaries believe that these people who first separated themselves from those who were profaning the name of the Lord in the days of Enosh, that these people were the progenitors of the sons of God that are mentioned for us in Genesis chapter 6. However, in Genesis 6, unfortunately, we find that the sons of God, those who would be representative of the set-apart ones, those who were representative of the holy ones, sadly, they mingled. How did they do that? 
they saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And after the sons of God mixed with the daughters of men, then we see how this corruption begins to take place in earnest. Now, there are some who believe, and I'm going to stress this, there are some who believe, I'm not going to say I'm a proponent or an opponent of this, but there are some who believe that these sons of God that are mentioned in Genesis chapter 6 are actually from Seth's line. See, Seth is the one that was appointed in the stead of Abel because Cain had killed Abel. So we have those who believe that the sons of God of Genesis 6 are descended from Seth. Then there are those, those same people believe that those that are called the daughters of men are descended from the line of Cain. And again, I'm not going to be a proponent of this or an opponent. I'm just uh, relating to you what many believe. But I will say this, it does line up with the idea of weed and tares. You've got the good seed and you've got the other seed. And of course, Cain would certainly represent that other seed because he is of that wicked one, according to 1 John chapter 3. And we've talked about that in times past. So with that in mind, I want to read you a quote from a 19th century commentator. He said, in in regard to this concept, he said, It cannot be denied that the connection of Genesis 6 verses 1 through 8 with Genesis 4, referring to the days of Enosh, necessitates the assumption that such intermarriages of the Sethite and Cainite families did take place about the time of the flood, and the prohibition of mixed marriages under the law also favors the same idea. In other words, what he is saying is because what we see in Genesis 4, he's connecting that to what we see in Genesis 6, and he concludes that the sons of God are descendants of Seth, intermarrying with the descendants of Cain. And as such, because of this and the results and the ramifications and the corruption that later on Moses and Israel is given instructions not to intermarry with the nations. That's what he's, he's getting at here. Now, I want to read to you um, from a book I wrote several years ago called Enmity Between the Seeds. And I am quoting an, an 18th century commentator who is named John Gill, who was relating an Arab tradition about what we're talking about here. So it says, Immediately after the death of Adam, Seth's family separated themselves from the family of Cain and dwelt upon Mount Hermon, supposedly the burial site of Adam. And the Cainites resided in the valley beneath where, according to the tradition, Abel was killed by his brother. After some time had elapsed, the sons of Seth ventured into the valley and found the women of Cain's lineage to be of exceptional beauty, and they began to intermarry. Now, again, this is an 18th century commentator relating an Arab tradition. And I want to underscore that word tradition. And that means it's not necessarily to be taken as the gospel. But it is just to say that there were centuries ago people who were seeing in Genesis 6 that what's being related to us about the days of Noah focused on this. Things that mixed together that were never intended to mix. Things that were supposed to be holy mixing with things that were profane. And this is the overwhelming theme of the days of Noah. Now, I'm going to read to you from another external source. and Let me interject this statement here 
anytime we're reading from something that is um, outside of the Scripture, I want you to understand, we don't take this as the final word on anything. It's just interesting to see how it might line up with what the Bible does, in fact, say. And it gives us some insight, maybe a little bit more context. So, that being said, I want to read to you from the book of Jasher as it relates to this particular topic. It says, And all the sons of men departed from the ways of the Lord in those days, as they multiplied upon the face of the earth with sons and daughters. And they taught one another their evil practices, and they continued sinning against the Lord. And every man made unto, made unto himself a god, and they robbed and plundered every man his neighbor as well as his relative. And they corrupted the earth, and the earth was filled with violence. And their judges and rulers went to the daughters of men and took their wives by force from their husbands according to their choice. And the sons of men in those days took from the cattle of the earth the beasts of the field and the fowls of the air and taught the mixture of animals of one species with the other in order therewith to provoke the Lord. And God saw the whole earth and it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted its way upon the earth, all men and all animals. Now, again, this is a source outside of Scripture. But what this source is telling us in concert with some other commentators, and I believe lining up with the Scripture, is whether all the specifics that the book of Jasher pointed out to us are accurate or not, the concept it speaks in concert with what the scripture is saying, and that is in Genesis 6. The emphasis is on mixing and mingling. Now, with all due respect to those who feel that Genesis 6 is emphasizing fallen angels mating with human women, really I don't see the evidence of that in the, in the Bible. But what I do see the evidence of, and what these other sources are substantiating and echoing, is that in Genesis 6, the days of Noah, the primary thing that's going on is people mixing and mingling, and especially as it relates to the sons of God, those who are to be holy and set apart, how they too are sucked into this idea of mixing and mingling. And notice that they mingle with the beautiful daughters of men, because the adversary is always going to taunt God's people, not with something that looks obviously wicked, not with something that is uh, unattractive. He's going to put something out there that looks good. Just when he seduced the woman into eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, a mixed tree. What part of that fruit do you think he shows the woman? The evil part? No. He's going to show her the good part because she ends up looking at the tree and determining that it's good for food, it is pleasant to the sight, and it's a tree desirable to make one wise. So he showed her something that looks good, but he hides the evil intent. That's the way the adversaries always worked. I believe that's what's going on in Genesis chapter 6. And so then, the days of Noah, what Messiah said would be going on in the days before his return, it's emphasizing the ramifications of mingling good with evil, clean with unclean. It emphasizes the dangers and the, the consequences of buying into the mindset that coexistence is good. That's what the days of Noah are all about. And this is the reason that Israel was instructed 
as they were coming into the land of Israel. Don't give your daughters to their husbands. Don't let your sons marry their daughters. This, we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 3 and 4. And why did God give Israel that instruction? It had nothing to do with race. It didn't even have to do with culture per se. It had to do with the fact that if you, my people, who've been given my instructions and my laws, my word, my seed, and you are called to be a goikadosh, a holy or set-apart nation, if you give your sons and daughters to their sons and daughters to intermarry, then what you're going to introduce into your homes is their gods, their philosophies, their ideologies, and you're going to mix those things with the truth, and you'll end up doing the same thing that Adam did in Genesis chapter 3. And that will lead to exile. And you'll end up doing exactly what the sons of God did in Genesis chapter 6. And that will lead to destruction. So God is telling the, the people of Israel, don't intermarry with their philosophies. Don't intermarry with their ideologies and their ideals. Don't think that it is a good thing to coexist with them. It doesn't say that you have to hate that person. It's, he said, don't coexist. Be a set-apart person. Don't buy into that mentality. Don't buy into that ideology. Don't buy into it because when you do, you may think that you're going to be a light to them, but you're going to start acting like them. And the consequences are going to be the same. Everybody knows who Solomon is and how wise Solomon was. Well, look what happened to Solomon and look what happened to Israel as a consequence of Solomon taking strange wives, according to 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. So even the wisest king that Israel ever had was seduced into thinking that it was okay to coexist. What were the ramifications? After Solomon died, the dissolution of the kingdom of Israel. It almost broke out into civil war. It, it, it did divide into north and south. And that was a direct result of Solomon taking and coexisting with strange wives. Because those strange wives brought their ideologies into the land of Israel through the king. It led ultimately to the dispersion of the house of Israel at the hand of the Assyrians. Because after the kingdom divided into north and south... And Israel, the northern kingdom, fell into idolatry, mixing and mingling. And where did all this emanate from? Well, apparently from Solomon taking these strange wives. And so you have Jeroboam looking at the, his, the people that are in his kingdom and thinking, well, they're going to go up to Jerusalem to worship God at, at Unleavened Bread and at Shavuot or Pentecost and at Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. So I don't want that to happen. So what I need to do is I need to build some altars and I'm going to make some golden calves in Dan and Bethel. And I'm going to say to Israel, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In other words, he was going to take things that were profane and mingle them with concepts that were holy. And that is the very reason that the northern kingdom of Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians and dispersed through the nations. There's consequences for coexistence. And then, of course, the kingdom of Judah, they're going to come under the tyranny of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, all because somebody thought that it was okay to coexist. The creator of the universe, the God of Israel, 
our Father in heaven says to his people, no, you're not to coexist. You're to be a set apart people. After Judah went into Babylonian captivity because of their refusal to be true to God's laws and standards. And so they come back after 70 years out of Babylonian captivity. And they're coming back to Jerusalem. And they're rebuilding the temple. And they're rebuilding the city. Guess what they started doing? Some of the men of, of Judah began to take strange wives again. And this became an issue that Ezra, the priest, has to stand up and say, according to Ezra chapter 9, to, you're to put these strange wives away. Because if you don't, we're going to end up back in the same boat we just got out of. There are consequences for coexistence. Unless you think that this is strictly an Old Testament concept, Paul addresses this issue as well in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 when he talks about not being unequally yoked. We're not supposed to do that. He's not talking about race. He's not talking about culture. He's talking about why would someone who has been born again of an incorruptible seed, which is Messiah, why would that person who's been born again, who is to be a set-apart people, why would they want to join themselves to those who are not set apart, those who have not been born again of that incorruptible seed, those who are of another seed? What fellowship, he asks, does light have with darkness? Or Messiah with Belial. Do not be unequally yoked. This is a concept, ladies and gentlemen, that goes all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. And it follows through all the way to the end of Scripture. In the very beginning, we see it in the tree of life. As opposed by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life produces a fruit that gives life. If you eat it, you live. But the mingled tree, the opposite, it renders death. If you eat it, you die. There are consequences for mixing. We see it in Jacob and Esau. Jacob I have loved. Esau, who is related to the idea of tares and weeds, things that are earthy, these are two brothers born of the same womb, but they're two different peoples altogether. And then, of course, the Messiah kind of echoes the whole Jacob and Esau story by telling us the parable of the wheat and the tares. The tares are those weeds and those things that undermine the wheat and try to destroy the wheat, as a matter of fact. And that's what Esau represents. As a matter of fact, let me read to you from Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. Rebekah is pregnant, but she realizes there's something going on inside her, and and she goes to inquire of the Lord. And, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Here's what the Lord is telling Rebecca. You've got a struggle going on inside of you because there are two different peoples inside of you. And even though in the flesh they're brothers, in the spirit they're not. They're not going to get along with one another. They're not even intended to get along with one another. They're not, it's not intended that they coexist. Because one is always going to be stronger than the other. Meaning they, they can't walk side by side and, and run the family together. One or the other is always going to be stronger than the other. 
And so if Esau is representative of that carnal nature, he's Admoni is the term which translates as red, ruddy, but also means earthy, which is to say carnal. If he represents the carnal nature, then Jacob represents the spiritual nature. Well, the carnal nature nature is born first. We came into this world shaped in iniquity. That's why we had to be born again. But even though we've been born again, we still struggle against our flesh, our earthy carnal nature. That's why we have to crucify our flesh every day. In other words, the, the new creation, the one that's been born again, can't coexist with the one that's earthy and carnal. Therefore, I have to crucify that earthy carnal nature every day. Because if I don't... Just like weeds growing in a garden, it grows of its own accord. It doesn't need any help. It just comes naturally. And if it's left untended and unchecked and unchallenged, it will choke out the plant that wants to thrive, that needs to thrive. That is the spiritual nature. It will choke it out. That's what Esau represents. And so all of this is to say the Creator doesn't just tell us these things in the quote-unquote Old Testament. He tells us these things in the New Testament as well. Because He's the one that placed enmity between the woman and the serpent and their respective seeds. They're not supposed to coexist. Because when they coexist, when they get mixed together that's when corruption ensues. And that's what we see in the days of Noah. When men are mixing and mingling, before you know it, the entire earth is corrupt, according to Genesis 6, verse 11. So how was it that the earth was corrupted? Because men and women were mixing. Well, there's a concept in the Torah, in the quote-unquote Old Testament, that tells us that when you have two different seeds and you mingle them together from God's point of view, not only is the fruit that's going to be produced corrupt, but because the fruit's corrupt, that falls to the earth, and then it begins to affect the very earth. You can see that concept in Deuteronomy 22, verse 9. And again, if the fruit is corrupt, then it's going to corrupt the earth that it's growing in. And that's exactly what we see in Genesis 6. Men are corrupting themselves upon the earth, and their corruption actually corrupts the very earth. So here's something that we, we learn about the days of Noah, that not only were men corrupt, but the earth was corrupt. Well, let's look around us today. Not only are men corrupt, but look at the earth itself. Look at the planet and how it's responding to the corruption. We've got weather patterns that are changing, things that are inexplicable, people scratching their heads, wondering what's going on in the earth and earthquakes and tsunamis and all these different things that, yes, in some form or fashion, we've, already, we've always had. But it seems to me they're growing more intense and they're growing more frequent. There is a rabbinical belief that in the days of Noah, in the days leading up to the flood, that something happened as it relates to the earth itself being corrupted. And that is that what we call tares, in Hebrew the term would be zunim, they believe that the zunim or tares is actually a degenerate form of wheat. And this degenerate form of wheat actually originated during the time of the flood. And they base that on Genesis 6, 11 when it says that the earth 
was corrupt before God. And so I'm going to read to you from a rabbinic commentary that addresses this. And again, this is outside the Bible, so you're, you know, we take it with uh, a measure of, of caution. But nonetheless, it says in Genesis Rabbah, it says, Even the earth debauched itself. Wheat was sown, and it produced zunim, or tares. For the zunim we find now came from the age of the flood. And all of that is to say that, according to rabbinical belief, when it says that not only were men corrupt, but the earth was corrupt, then the earth began to corrupt, uh, excuse me, produce corrupt things. The earth began to respond in a negative way to men's corruption. And that is in part why God determined to destroy man and beast, fowls of the air, creeping thing, and everything in the earth. Because everything was corrupt. Everything was corrupt save a remnant. A remnant called Noah and his family. If you will, seed that was pure. Seed that had not been corrupted. Seed that had not mixed and mingled and coexisted. And if these days, the days of Noah, are likened unto the return of the Messiah then it not only tells me that people are going to be corrupt, it not only tells me the earth is going to be corrupt, and it's not a stretch to look and see that that is happening right now, but it also tells me that in the midst of this, there's going to be a remnant of people who are pure seed, the wheat, if you will, who have been born again of an incorruptible seed, who are not going to be seduced into coexistence and mixing and mingling, but are going to be true and upright. And when everyone else gets swept away with the return of the Messiah, those are the people who are going to be left behind. Those are the people who are going to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. That's who I want to be. And I know that's who you want to be. Join me again next week. We're going to continue talking about the days of Noah. Until then, Shalom. Like what you're hearing? Become a Bill Cloud Premium Partner to watch or listen to hundreds of hours of teachings and resources on demand. Go to BillCloud.com slash subscribe to start watching today.